You are listening to the Health and Wellness Connection Podcast, the number one wellness podcast designed to provide the latest information to help you achieve your health and wellness goals. Our show features exciting guests, the latest in medical research, and in-depth discussions in current trends on weight loss, nutrition, and fitness. No matter what your interest, the Health and Wellness Podcast has you covered. And now, presenting your illustrious host, Dr. Barry, M.D. Hello, 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 and welcome to the latest episode of the Health and Wellness Connection. It's your host, Dr. Barry, and I'm the person hopefully bringing you some exciting and entertaining information today in the health and wellness space. Now, of course, I'm a board-certified emergency physician and lifestyle medicine physician who hopefully will give you some tips as well as present some new info research-backed data to hopefully help you make better health and wellness decisions. So, of course, before we go any forward, uh, before we go any further, I'd like to say, you know, please, guys, support the show. Um, we um, definitely do a lot of work to produce this show weekly. Please share it with your friends and family. Please subscribe to the show. You can do it via Spotify, Apple Music, or any podcast aggregator. Just search Health and Wellness Connection on your favorite podcast or music app and you should be able to pull up the show and subscribe also you know when we start doing more of the tiktoks as well you're going to please follow us there at dr barry health on tiktok follow us there definitely appreciate that so i guess um and lastly if you want to donate and financially support the show you can do so via cash app um, cash app at dr barry health and also from international uh, uh, listeners you can go to the anchor podcast page or the sorry the spotify podcast page and uh, you can also get the show there and um listen to it online as well as donate to the show so yes thank you guys for listening and supporting the show appreciate all the feedback um we definitely appreciate it and we're going to keep bringing you that content that you guys have really been enjoying and uh yeah so let's talk about what's in the news here this week so some interesting stories came across my desk and i wanted to discuss a few of them a lot of them are very concerning, to be honest with you, and it really relates to kind of just the amount of chemicals that surround us that are negatively affecting our overall health and wellness. Now, one article that came across my desk, um, really concerning, to be honest to me, especially as a male, um, this ar- article looks at pesticides. And now there's been increasing evidence that is showing that there is a link between pesticides and reduced sperm counts. One thing we've been seeing, especially in the modern era, is that birth rates have been dropping quite a bit. Um, You know, many countries in Western Europe um, and as well as America, it's been noted that many of the males in the population are having lower sperm counts than they did about 50 years ago. So people have been looking at what's causing these sperm counts to drop in the male population, which is ultimately resulting, what is believed to be resulting in reduced birth rates. Um, and I'm sure there's many other factors playing a role in that, but definitely sperm counts dropping won't help matters. So what happened is a couple of people did some research. They looked at um, data around various studies that were conducted over the past 50 years. This was done actually at University of Virginia, George Mason University, College of Public Health. And they looked at <clears throat> whether or not there was some association with the increase in pesticide usage um, that Maybe that was associated with this decline in sperm concentration. 
because it is believed and well known that sperm is very, very sensitive to any sort of biological disturbance. Can easily Sperm can easily die when exposed to various chemicals that may not affect other cells as badly. So, and then specifically, as far as pesticides are concerned, the class of pesticides known as organophosphates and N-methylcarbamates, all of these are very dangerous um, drugs. These are actually the the, the base for a lot of those toxic gases like sarin gas and other um, killer gases that were used in the war, wars. But once they reduced the concentration and made them a little bit weaker, they became pesticides. So, you know, higher concentrations, they're humanocides. <laughs> but at lower concentrations, they're pesticides. So either way, it's poison all the way around. So because the concentration is lower, doesn't mean they're not as harmful. And we're seeing that it's definitely harming the sperm based on what the data is showing so far. So if you guys remember the last episode, we discussed how some of these forever chemicals and harmful chemicals being found in the um, hair straightening preparations are causing um, significant hormonal issues and cancers in women, especially or whoever uses them, which is predominantly uh, women um, in a lot of areas. So this one is really affecting everyone in the sense that you know, people who are exposed to these pesticides or, you know, you see them in fruits and vegetables, you buy the grocery store, they're using actually a lot of the um, um, uh, materials and whatnot that are in homes and other building uh, materials and apartments and whatnot. So they're really everywhere. And so if you're unaware of this, the exposure can get to the point where there could be damage to the body, including the sperm cells, which is what is being seen um, pretty apparently. So this study was published recently this week in the Environmental Health Perspectives. It looked at chemicals found, um, you know, in the environment, especially those who are in outdoor agricultural-based jobs. And they found that those who were in these outdoor agricultural-based jobs had less sperm concentration um, than those who weren't. And it's believed that because these men were exposed to more organophosphates and a lot of pesticides in their agricultural-based jobs, this was contributing to their sperm concentration declines. So this is very concerning, and I think something that obviously um, countries are inter- interested in tackling because without you know, reproduction, you're going to have a dwindling population which can eventually cause whatever society you're building to disappear. So that's one of the issues it's believed to cause a sperm reduction, especially in in the Western world. Also, it's believed that poor diet, obesity, as well as chronic illness and disease is also contributing to the decreased sperm counts as well. So um, the study kind of looked at all the different potential causes, and they mentioned, of course, the organophosphates and other pesticide exposure, then, of course, the other toxins. And one thing they also highlighted as well was cell phone use, because it was believed that uh, another study that was looked at in this kind of assessment of various uh, data points, they looked at men between the ages of 18 and 22 who said they use their phone more than 20 times a day. Um, These men in this group who use their phone excessively over 20 times a day had a 21% higher risk of low overall sperm count. They also had a 30% higher risk of low sperm concentration. So, and you know, this study is kind of a loose study. They just looked at cell phone use frequency and then they looked at the sperm concentration of these men and they found that those who used the phone more had lower concentration of sperm. So take it with that what you will. But, you know, this, the radiation that exposed, that your phone's producing, chances are there is some potential 
harm being done to sperm um, that are nearby. So overall, you know, this is a really significant public health issue, in my opinion. Um, and it's something that we need to take very seriously, especially when it comes to ensuring that people are able to reproduce if they cho- so choose to. And, uh, and yeah, so um, I think the thing you can do, especially when it comes to, you know, pesticides on food and other um, edible sources where pesticides may enter to your body, making sure you're washing your fruits and vegetables with warm water and soap for 20 seconds before and after preparing produce. Just reducing that organophosphate and other pesticides. Sometimes simple, just rinsing is not enough. You got to really wash it and get it nice and, and, and washed so that you can remove as many chemicals as possible. And consider peeling or removing the, the, the skin of the fruit and vegetables as well. Because believe that a lot of times the, um, the skin contains a lot of those chemicals that may be on um, the vegetable, especially if they've been heavily soaked with a pesticide. And sometimes peeling it may not be a bad idea to reduce that ingestion. Also, a brush is a good idea too to agitate the skin when you're washing your vegetables to make sure that you're getting those uh, chemicals off of it. And lastly, you know, people use your cell phone. You want to kind of keep the phone away from your uh, genitalia, especially my gentlemen out here. Be careful with that um, near the family jewels. Not really, I think, a good thing. Secondly, you know, Bluetooth devices are also helpful as well. So make sure you consider Bluetooth device, keeping your phone, maybe in your bag, using your Bluetooth device to speak and uh, helping reduce that radiation exposure to those sensitive neither regions. So again, um, sperm counts dropping and maybe the society chemicals that we're being exposed to may be contributing. So interesting story there. So moving on, um, let's talk about let's talk about sleep. Um, sleep has been a big issue, and we've linked lack of sleep to many issues in the past shows, including increased inflammation, cancer, um, increased risk of heart disease, and, and the like. Just so many things can result in not sleeping well. So, um, and me, I'm st- doing this show on lack of sleep myself, so I'm actually <laughs> not listening to my own advice, but I'm going to go to bed very soon after the show's over. But that being said, um, this new study that came out recently, talked about sleep and its link to increased dementia risk. So, you know, if you're not taking care of your brain when you're young, the chances are you will lose your mind when you're older, just to give you a heads up. So please get some sleep, guys. Um, at least six hours, ideally. Um, six to eight is typical uh, as far as recommendations from the American Health Association. Um, but this study here talks about losing as little as 1% of deep sleep each year has been linked to a 20 7% increased risk in dementia. So imagine just losing 1% of deep sleep. And, um, you know, which is not very much, obviously. If you're sleeping six hours, you want like four hours of that to be a nice deep sleep. So for 1% of that four hours would be like what? You know, four. Doing some napkin math, about 360 minutes about 2.8 minutes guys 2.8 minutes a day um, 1% um, of that typical deep sleep can literally result in an increased risk of 27% of dementia so um, it's pretty crazy guys so you want to be very careful um, about how you you know protect your sleep and make sure you're getting that sleep that's required every day and this study here was a relatively small study it looked at 346 people it looked at um, a data set known as a Framingham Heart Study which is again a big data pool where they collected data from people from the about 
about a seven-year period, and they pulled it all together. And now the scientists go back to the data and look at different patterns and try to make different links and associations. So this study looked at, again, people who were diagnosed with Alzheimer's, looked at their sleep patterns and found that those who were not sleeping as well had increased risk of Alzheimer's. So, you know, in, in short, it's so important, guys, to get good sleep. Um, deep sleep especially is critical because it helps the brain sustain itself. Not all the actual things going on are fully understood, but it's known that deep sleep can help restore the brain, heal the brain, allow it to rest and be ready for the next day. So sleep is critical. And uh, it's showing that if you're not sleeping, you can literally um, become uh, demented as a result, which is not really um, something you want. All right. So speaking of another study that looks at data sets and tries to make links thereof, um, a new study looks at looking looked at cannabis use. And they looked at cannabis use potentially being linked to heart failure heart attack and stroke. Now, this one thing about cannabis research is that, you know, because of the rules and regulations, especially how cannabis is classified as currently a Schedule 1 drug, which is considered highly dangerous, extremely um, unuse, not useful for human consumption or even analysis, resulting in no research being done on a substantial level, um, it's been shown that there is some potential issues that need to be figured out on the research side. So people have been trying to collate data from different studies that may be referencing cannabis here and there, but not actually explicitly testing it and its effects. And they're coming up with different conclusions, and many people are having potential issues with some of the conclusions. This study is one of them. So this study here looked at um, a bunch of data again, where they analyzed data sets of people who were identified as major cannabis users. Um, they looked at people who people who volunteer their data in the National Institute of Health um, data sets. And again, this is a pretty large data set, about 156,000 people who, whose data they looked at. And they didn't really, again, looked at, they looked at specifically those who had a diagnosis of heart failure and, um, <clears throat> and heart disease. And they looked at how much if they admitted to heavy cannabis use as well in their um, profiles. So what they so they kind of linked patients who had one diagnosis. They looked in, looked in their history and linked a set of patients who had a common history. In this case, it was cannabis use. Now, what they found was a little bit concerning in the sense that they found that of all the patients who had um, heart disease in their 50s, there was reported that they had potentially been using cannabis, and this is a daily cannabis use, those who had a reported daily cannabis use had a increased risk for heart failure. This is after they adjusted for age, sex, race, ethnicity, alcohol use, smoking, education, employment, income, health insurance, diabetes, and other chronic illnesses. So what they're implying is that after correcting for all the other known factors that are causing heart disease, and they looked at cannabis use specifically, they found that those who were daily users had an increased risk for heart failure. But they then say that, that those who had heart disease, apparently after they adjusted for those who had heart disease, they ended up having no difference in the presence of heart failure. So they're saying that maybe cannabis use is linked to increased heart disease, which is then linked to um, potentially heart failure. 
which to me is not 100% accurate. And again, this is an observational data kind of analysis. They looked at data and just kind of are trying to piece it together. They didn't actually look at the cannabis use, make people use cannabis and monitor them and see if they develop heart disease, which is how most studies should be done. Um, again, people um, have been looking at this data, not really um, too convinced that this is potentially a true association, especially given the many issues with the, with the data. Also, the study made a point to mention that those who were identified as cannabis users were actually also 30% of those people were using other harder drugs like methamphetamines, cocaine, and other very dangerous substances that are definitely associated with heart disease. So if someone's using cannabis and also using cocaine and they develop heart disease, I think it's unfair to say it's cannabis that's related or causing it when, in fact, we know cocaine is a direct, you know, um, can directly harm the heart. So either way, the study wasn't, to me, very good. And I'm not just saying that because I tend to advocate for cannabis, but what I'm seeing is that they're doing a lot of kind of associating of things that they're not fully kind of separating, identifying the actual source here of whatever outcome they're trying to identify. And hopefully when um, cannabis is fully decriminalized, which is what the government is proposing, there'll be more accurate research done to really analyze the direct effects, good or bad, of cannabis use uh, in a, in, in, on the human body. So let's hope more research will come out. But I'm glad these things are coming out. These data sets are getting, is getting people talking. Um, on the forum that I get my info from, there's a lot of back and forth regarding this data and how the study may or may not be as flawed. And uh, I think this is just from all the rules and regulations in place, not really allowing good research to take place. So hopefully this will be fixed once the laws are, are relaxed and researchers are able to really go in there and do the real proper data collection and research to really answer some of the questions that are out there. So that being said, um, you know, just keep everything with a, with, with a keep everything with um, an open mind and let's see kind of what's going on especially when the more accurate research is performed all right so moving on let's talk about again dementia again another interesting study regarding dementia risk and we know dementia is <clears throat> something we're trying to prevent because dementia is obviously one of those conditions that once you develop it the treatment um, is pretty poor so preventative is best you want to reduce the risk of dementia if you can so a lot of features is being pushed in that direction one thing that's very i think shows a lot of promise is showing that blood pressure reduction can be extremely effective in reducing dementia um, it's been shown that blood pressure and uncontrolled blood pressure can be very harmful to the brain and over time can result in many strokes and other neurological insults that can ultimately cause you to develop dementia as you age. So blood pressure reduction is extremely important when it comes to reducing your dementia risk. So even though, you know, they say blood pressure is a silent killer, I mean, nothing could be more true because all your organs over time just get damaged from your kidneys to your heart, to your um, brain, um, to your other organs. So you want to make sure your blood pressure is, is out of control. You're, you're pleased. You're taking that seriously. You're following what your doctor's taking your medication as prescribed. Um, but ultimately, blood pressure reduction is critical. And studies like this are showing that dementia uh, can be reduced significantly if you're controlling your blood pressure um, accurately. Now, what is blood pressure control? What does that should be, guys? Well, according to um, you know most recommendations, you want blood pressure um, 
ideally between the top number should be between 120s to 150s um, of course this varies based on your previous health um, and your previous diagnoses so please take these numbers with a grain of salt you want to confirm these with your primary care uh, clinician and making sure they're able to assess your health and determine what your number should be um, blood pressure is a very personal thing actually so it's something that people have to look at based on their health and in conjunction with their doctor determine the, the most appropriate way to control it now if it's out of control and your pressure is through the roof like higher than 200 top number bottom number higher than like 95 or 100 and you feel any kind of symptoms you want to go to your local emergency room and have your uh, local clinician look at your condition and see if they can figure out what's going on if you feel fine though and you just want to get your pressure down make sure you're taking your meds making sure you're following with your doctors or your um, nurse practitioners and other clinicians and ensuring that you're getting those numbers addressed based on whatever regimen you and your healthcare provider determine and again studies like this showing that dementia uh, it's something that can be reduced with blood pressure management. I just proves that it's so important to make sure we are looking at everything we can do to reduce our blood pressure safely. All right, speaking of mental health, another um, breakthrough has occurred uh, when it comes to treating one of the biggest problems when it comes to mental health and new mothers, and that is postpartum depression. A postpartum depression has been believed to be on the rise as mothers have more difficult time coping with the realities of being a new mom. Um, again, it's a multi, very complex problem and uh, usually requires a combination of intense um, of psychological therapy. Um, however, there are some drugs that are being marketed as potential um, positive uh, treatments options for postpartum depression uh, or people suffering from postpartum depression. Now, there's a new pill <clears throat> called um new pill called Zurzuve, which is uh, produced by a company called biogen and they are offering a new 14-day course treatment for postpartum depression and they say that it's effective and can be helpful in reducing some of those potential risks associated with postpartum depression like suicide um, homicide and the like so they're saying that this new pill or 14-day regimen will cost about $16,000 for the two-week course. Um, so it's going to be pretty pricey, guys. If you got $16,000, i am thinking you're going to spend $16,000, you'll probably get more depressed because that's pretty a high bill to spend on uh, medications. But they're saying that, um, obviously, they hope the insurance companies will cover those costs regarding um, the medication. But um, $50,000, especially if you're looking at high post post um, hospital bills from delivering your child and then you got another pill on top of that causing more expenses i mean this is a i think it's a potentially a issue that can cause more problems but i think if it's effective and the patient does have coverage they can get it uh, and it's safe it may not be a bad option if you are someone who's suffering from postpartum depression i think in conjunction with psychotherapy this may be something that could be considered obviously you want to speak with your your doctors um, I, your psychologist, if you're someone who's suffering from postpartum depression, and maybe looking at this could be an option for you, especially if you have the coverage potential to to be able to afford it. All right, guys, moving on. Blood pressure has been in the news a lot, and we just talked about you know one issue: blood pressure associated with dementia. Well, another study is looking at blood pressure in general and why it's so prevalent, and it's believed that definitely diet and sodium intake is a big component. 
Um, so much so that a new study is showing that simply cutting one teaspoon of salt from your diet each day can lower your blood pressure just as much as a typical anti-hypertensive medication, even if you don't have high blood pressure. So salt is just so critical in how your blood pressure is controlled. Uh, we can get into the physiology, which is you know not, I think it's beyond the scope of this show, but body follows salt in and out of blood vessels. So when your sodium levels are high, you got more salt in your body, you got more fluid in your body, more fluid in your blood vessels resulting in higher blood pressures. So reducing your salt intake will help reduce your your body's ability to hold water, hold fluids, which can hopefully reduce your blood pressure if there's too much fluid in your blood vessels. And though it's believed that Americans just consume way too much salt. Um, now the American Heart Association is recommending a diet with less than 1,500 milligrams of salt a day. Um, now the reality is this. So again, salt can be especially common in fried foods, fast foods, salted nuts, and so forth. So you can consume a lot of salt very easily. Ideally, you want to get that salt intake <clears throat> below 1,400 milligrams per, again, the World Health. Um, sorry, 1,500 milligrams a day per the American Heart Association. So ultimately, when it comes to salt intake and making sure that we're getting their salt levels to a decent level to help lower our blood pressure, it's critical even if you don't have high blood pressure because it's believed that over time, continuous high levels of salt will ultimately lead to blood pressure problems. And that's something that you want to try to avoid. So at the end of the day, hypertension is something that we all need to try to look closer at to reduce our risk of developing it. And reducing your salt intake is one of the best ways to do that. In addition to working out, being active, uh, drinking a lot of fluids and things like that, salt reduction is going to be, I think, a big part of that as well. Now, just to illustrate the effect of this, there was a study published recently in the Journal of American Medical Association. It looked at 213 people, ages 50 to 75, right? And they looked at salt intake and how it affected their blood pressure. So what they did was, out of these 200 people, one of the group they took, they did a high, first of all, actually both groups did it, but they looked at how they responded to these um, changes in diet. So one week was a high salt diet, where they ate a lot of food high in salt, and they ate some bouillon cubes, which are just basically big salt cubes used for seasoning, and they had them eat that as well, and did that for one week. The next week, they had a low salt diet, and of course, tried to... Um, with the bullion cubes and just ate low salt foods. So what they found is that those who did the diet that was high in salt um, had a high blood pressure. Even those who were had normal blood pressure before the study ended up trending toward a higher blood pressure. Um, so pretty crazy how the blood pressure in the high salt group was universally elevated even if they did not have blood pressure problems. Now, those were a little bit lower than those who had high blood pressure already, but ultimately the pressures were generally elevated. Now, during the low salt week, they found that there was a drop in blood pressure and it was quick and dramatic according to the study. So once they found that people had switched over to low salt diet, the blood pressure dropped on average eight millimeters of mercury. So that's pretty good. That's almost like a blood pressure tablet over time. So. Um, ultimately, you know, a good, you know, eight millimeter mercury drop is fairly significant and can be a huge 
difference maker when it comes to long-term damage from high blood pressure. Now remember, salt is extremely common in many foods that we eat and drink, and sometimes you won't even think about it when you're being exposed to these foods and not realizing they do have high salt levels. For instance, a slice of bread could have 400 milligrams um, you know, of salt just there by itself. A pickle apparently has a full day's worth of salt. So you got to be careful as far as the salt because it's really a lot of foods that are commonly consumed. And uh, these foods, especially all these processed meats that we talk about a lot here, um, <clears throat> cured bacon, things like that, those can be extremely salty and can really contribute negatively to your blood pressure. Now, some people would argue sometimes having that salt is important, especially if you're going somewhere where you're going to be having a lack of access to water and you need some sort of uh, hydration. And, and some people argue that, yeah, maybe this could be helpful if you're in an extreme situation where you need you know, to retain water. And that could be true, but most people aren't in those situations. So if you're just a normal person going into work, living a normal, typical life, then, you know, holding on to that salt is really effective. So, again, if you're someone who has blood pressure problems or family history of it, or you're just higher risk yourself, you want to look at your salt intake, making sure you make, you're looking at what you're putting in your body and trying to reduce your consumption of salt over time, because that will definitely help reduce your risk of blood pressure problems. All right, guys, so in a related story as far as salt, but a whole different direction, not a whole different, but a different direction, and that is salt water gargling may actually help avoid COVID hospitalization. So a new study comes out of California looking at gargling and nasal rinsing with salt water several times a day. They've seen that there's association potentially with lower COVID-19 hospitalization rates. This was done in a small randomized study. So, you know, they believe that, you know, COVID is known to hang out in the nose and the mouth and so forth. So it was concerned that if they were to do this, maybe rinse people out, wash their mouths out, they could reduce the viral load, reduce the potential risk of spreading to other people, especially if you tested positive. So they looked at people between ages 18 and 65 who tested positive, right, for COVID. Between 20, and this is between the 2020 and 2022 years. Um, they looked at using them and putting them on this high or low dose salt water regimen for 14 days. This is done in Houston, Texas, at the Harris Health System. This is actually a popular hospital down here in Houston, where I am currently residing. Now, what they did was looked at the patients who were COVID positive, put them on this salt rinse regimen, and they looked at to see, you know, who, how they did, if they got sicker, got worse, got better, and uh, kind of went from there. So the patients who put in the study, they got them on this rinse. They put them on water and salt, approximately eight ounces of water, six grams of salt. They gargle this, uses the nasal rinse as well, five minutes at a time, four times a day. And so what they found was that um, they looked at those, you know, how they did, if they went to the hospital later on, if they got better quickly. And they just see how the patients did before and after the um this rinsing, the regular rinsing. And they found that those who did the regular rinses had a significantly lower rate of hospitalization. So, which is pretty crazy. Um, they said they found that, um, and so what they found was that those who rinse regularly had lower hospitalization rates. So we do know that once you get hospitalized, typically it's a pneumonia or severe 
lower respiratory infection. That's kind of what puts COVID patients in the hospital a lot of the times. So they b- believe that maybe the rinsing was helping keeping the nasal, mucus, the nasal mu- mucus pa- um, passages clear, resulting in decreased congestion, resulting in decreased deep respiratory infection. So um, the exact link is not really clear, but it's pretty crazy how you can just simply be doing a salt rinse can help reduce your risk of hospitalization if you're already COVID positive. So, you know, that's not a bad idea. I would say if you're someone who has COVID, have a lot of congestion, making sure you're rinsing out uh, regularly, uh, consider those saline uh, rinses as well, this ocean spray, get it in there, squirt, get all the conge- congestion out of there, keep those patches clear. That could potentially keep you from getting sicker from COVID. So interesting study again, um, this one, something that I'll be looking at closely and maybe recommending to my patients as well. So consider this if you're someone who has a lot of congestion, especially if you're COVID positive. So anyways, guys, this show's grabbing to an end. A little bit of a slower news week, but still some interesting stories here, guys. Um, Please feel free to reach out to me if you have any questions, concerns. We had a lot of people hitting me up for advertising. We're going through those now, and you'll see some ads here because we do have to pay the bills. But if you want to reduce those ads, guys, those donations are going to be highly, highly, um, you know, desired, if you will. Either way, I'm signing out, guys. Dr. Barry, thanks again for listening to the show, The Health and Wellness Connection. We will be back to you next week with more health and wellness news. Again, Dr. Barry MD on Instagram, Dr. Barry Health on TikTok, Dr. Barry Tech Doc on Twitter. And of course, you can check us out on any of your favorite media platforms, Health and Wellness Connection. Subscribe to the show today. Tell a friend. It's your host, Dr. Barry, signing out. Peace. Thank you for listening to the Health and Wellness Connection podcast and radio show. For more information on ways to get healthy, please check us out. www.anchor.fm forward slash HW Connection. Here you can re-listen to the show, check out older shows, and even further support the show by becoming a subscriber to the podcast. Please check us out today. Again, that's anchor.fm forward slash HW Connection. And also, don't forget to follow Dr. Barry on Instagram at drbarrymd. Until next time, stay healthy.